Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking with Jacqueline Novogratz about her new book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, John. Hey. So why don't you tell our listeners, uh, sort of introduce yourself, tell them who you are, what you do. So my name is Jacqueline Novogratz, and I'm the founder and CEO of an organization called Acumen, which essentially invests the right kind of capital into the right kind of character, surrounds it with community uh, to create change. And hopefully we can unpack some of that. But in brief, we've essentially moved almost a billion dollars of philanthropic capital as well as more traditional investment capital, all with the aim of building solutions of po- to poverty that help individuals um, living in poverty have more domain over their own lives um, uh, with a real focus on human dignity. And, um, and as you said, John, I've just written a book called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, really after 35 years of doing this work. Yeah. The way I read, as I said in my review of the book, the way I see this book is sort of in the tradition of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals or Niccolò Machiavelli's um, The Prince. Or There's this whole genre of literature where um, it says, okay, if you want to make changes in society, here are the, based human nature being what it is, uh, human societies being what they are, institutions being what they are, here are the likely types of people and problems that you're going to encounter. And so uh, if you read any of those books, what they are is almost like a kind of a roadmap, you know, where, okay, I've been over this terrain for quite a while. There's mountains here. There's valleys here. Watch out for the poison ivy there. Watch out for the, you know, the snakes there. Like um, there, it's sort of, you're giving kind of the lay of the land. And what I took away, I took a lot of things away from this book, but one of the things that I thought was most valuable was as a, almost like a, I guess almost like a sociological or a sort of saying like, okay, if you want to change the world, um, here's a whole bunch. You you may find 
uh, some some new obstacles that obviously I'm not that are more particular that I haven't mentioned. But here's the things that I've that I've encountered and that other people seem to encounter. And here are some good ways of of dealing with them. Right? Is that? Do you think that's uh, a fair assessment of of the book? Well, first of all, can I just say I, I'm now a fangirl um, <laughs> for what you just said, and I'm I'm slightly you know humbled and embarrassed that. Uh, I certainly didn't think that I was writing the equivalent of Machiavelli's The Prince, although I read it and teach it. But, you know, the this idea that we need to build a set of principles, but more important practices, yes, was at the heart of um, why I wrote this book, because it is hard to be alive right now, not only in the 21st century, but in this time of coronavirus, without um, admitting to ourselves that the institutions that so many of us took for granted for so long are not working. And we need to reimagine them, and we've not yet, we've not yet been able to do that. And that it would be too easy to say it's a new... Um, it's a new technology, it's a new um, silver bullet, because change doesn't happen um, according to some linear projection, Um, certainly not change in a world where we've got so many competing belief systems and we are at a point of the greatest inequality, divisiveness, um, fragility, if you will, than certainly ever in, in my lifetime. And so, because there is no how to guide. And I say that after having helped entrepreneurs reach 300 million people. So I know it's possible, but because there is no how to guide um, and no roadmap, the best I could offer anybody who wants to be involved in the world and work of change is a, is a set of, principles and practices, if you will, a moral compass, even though at the end of the day, all of us will have different points of that compass that guide and drive us. But we all need to be pointed toward this idea of human dignity, our shared humanity. And um, that's what this book tries to do. Uh, Well, one of the types, I want to sort of go through the different human types that you uh, that you give this really fantastic advice on how to deal with them. So one type of human type that you uh, talk about a fair amount is market fundamentalists who believe that you can solve every problem has a market solution. They're kind of like very ideological Silicon Valley libertarian types. So how can those types be an obstacle to change and, and how have you navigated uh, relationships with with people who have that view? Um, an obstacle and a partner to change. Sure, yeah. Right? I would say at the beginning it was much harder, um, quite frankly. 20 years ago, we had literally raised shareholder capitalism to the rank of religion. Um, and I have so many conversations, and there are only a few of them in the book, but I could have written a book only about the conversations where I would, you know, try to pitch this idea that we needed long-term patient capital, um, that access to markets was indeed a form of freedom for low-income people, 
But just getting stuff out to low-income people wasn't enough. You had to actually help build the capabilities. You had to fight a lot of forces in the status quo. And when I would start to try to help, uh, to help VCs, venture capitalists, understand, I was met with a wall of frustration and impatience. You know, Jacqueline, markets work. And so if you have, a, have an idea that's good and strong and people value, it'll go viral. And I would say, well, <laughs> if they have no money, if they have no trust, if they have limited skills, if what is around them is a whole lot of bureaucracy, corruption, complacency, um, I don't know. It's a lot harder to build something. And then they'd look at me like, well, so why are you wasting your time? And um, so I would say at the beginning, I had a lot of very humiliating conversations that would often end in um, either, you know, you clearly don't understand how business works. In one case, um, hedge fund guy said, why don't you let us build those businesses? Because we know how. And I said to him, well, have you ever been to Northern India? Um, where there's, you know, the Naxalites, terrorists, um, we're trying to bring electricity to a part of the world where even government has said people are too far flung and poor to reach. And so, you know, go ahead if you want to move to rural Bihar, build a company. Um, but of course they didn't. And so the, there were times when it was antagonism, antagonistic, but I would actually say that as we just went forward with those crazy early adopters who were willing to take a bet on um, this idea that if it did work could be transformational, I learned that you didn't need to be that big before other people would start noticing. Um, but the first five, six years, John, uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say they were lonely, hard, and um, at times isolating. Yeah. Well, there, there's a lot of resistance to, I mean, you talk about this uh, in Manifesto and also in the Blue Sweater. There's a lot of resistance to the idea that somehow you can integrate these two worlds, like the world of, of altruism and kind of NGO uh, charity stuff and the world of, of markets and capitalism. And a lot of people have the idea that they should just be separate, right? And, and it's not just market fundamentalists that have that idea. In fact, uh, even to some extent, somebody like a, a good centrist liberal like Adam Gopnik, he even has, uh, to some extent, holds that view that the market is this kind of wild beast and you have to let it uh, let it do its thing. And, it, and then you sort of just share out the spoils. But, but you don't want to really get you don't want to interfere too much in the process, the messy process of how the sausage is made, so to speak, uh, that that's just going to make you uncompetitive and probably will be, you know, not a good idea. So a lot of people have that view. Yeah. It's, and that's it's like, not just, you know, yeah. If the world were, if, if the world were fair, if markets were fair, but so often market fundamentalists um, forget that there are subsidies all through the system. Forget about the fact that we come to the market with different levels of education, expertise, access, networks, um, contacts, which is, you know, I, I call social capital incredibly 
important part of um, deciding who gets access to capital, who gets yeah. the help that they need in terms of building. You come out of school with a Harvard MBA and a really strong network and a big sense of confidence. It's a lot easier to build a company um, for people who look like you and think like you, or even for people who don't, then if you are a low-income kid from the slums of Nairobi and you don't exactly have a Rolodex, you don't have the language, you're not sure that you even deserve to be sitting at the table. And frankly, nobody wants you there anyway, because when you're there, you don't speak in a way that they can understand. Yeah. Right? And so- yeah. The, 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 this idea, let the market go, is kind of what we've done. And look at where we are. We've got, you know, unsustainable levels of inequality. And we haven't accounted whatsoever for those without voice, the poor, the environment, and too often um, low-income consumers. Okay, well, another group that you sort of have all sorts of fantastic advice on how to deal with uh, is sort of cynical journalists, I guess cynics in general, but specifically uh, cynics. I mean, there's this one wonderful story, which I, it's one of my favorite stories in the book uh, where this, uh, the, the journalist in West Africa says to you, like, aren't you a little old to be so naive about Africa, uh, naive about Af- idealistic about Africa. And you kind of, you've just been dealing with that situation with your sister having to get, you know, being paralyzed and wondering if she's going to be able to dance again. And like, and you kind of lost it on the dude and like really gave it to him. And uh, I mean, but, but clearly that's, that's a type of person uh, that you're going to interact with a lot who says like, uh, people suck, everything sucks, like, why are you, why are you trying so hard? I mean, how do you, how do you sort of harness the usefulness of people like that in terms of that they, they, they often ask hard questions that maybe more idealistic people like us wouldn't notice. So they're useful, um, for sure, but without getting, um, I guess, hobbled by them you know, just yeah. so dispirited that you just feel like, oh, fuck it, you know? <laughs> like, One of the nice things about getting older is um, is the perspective. You know, number one, cynics don't change the world. Um, they don't build the future. Idealists by themselves uh, can paint a picture, but idealists who have a fierce level of pragmatism, they do change the world. And so I think your point is a really important one. It's often our fiercest critics, particularly if they're also our friends, um, who will tell us truths we need to hear. And so those VCs played a huge role, um, I would say, actually, as a gift in um, coming at me so strongly in the beginning, because it made me understand that if we were going to prove that patient capital as a model, as a model of a, of a more inclusive capitalism, and at least at getting toward a more inclusive capitalism, if that was going to be legitimate, I had to come back um, by proving that the social impact of the work that we were doing had to be equal, if not greater, 
than the kind of financial impact that um, they would normally be looking for. And, uh, and so I got much more rigorous, I would say, and disciplined because the social sector does get away too often with telling lots of anecdotes and not having real impact at scale because it's hard to do. Um, and so I'm, I feel indebted. I also came to learn that, you know, both sides have truth that the market plays a fundamental role. It's a listening device. It's a way of allocating resources more effectively than any other city system that we have on earth. A big moral question for me is um, who decides and when markets allow informed customers to decide um, a lot more good happens than when authoritarian regimes or big charities even decide what's good for you and when you'll get it and how it will be delivered. And so there's truth in the power of markets. There's also truth that markets are limited. And I have seen exploitation and exclusion to the levels that are not only unjust and immoral, but they, um, they're bad for all of us and they put all of us at greater insecurity. Yeah. I, I think one of the greatest messages of your, of your book, and I, this comes through in the blue sweater as well, but perhaps not as, as much and as clearly, but is the, just the basic idea of time and patience that you have to, uh, you have to take the long view if you want a real, really change things. You can't just go in with some big splashy thing that, that you're, you're going to make you know, boom and you're going to fix everything really, really mm-hmm. fast. Like the, the people that have tended to change the world uh, for good or for ill, it's usually been because they had a really long-term commitment to the people that they were trying to change. So, uh, and this, this is, there's so many different examples of this, but three examples that spring to mind immediately uh, would be um, Al-Qaeda, uh, the Jesuits, and the Mormons. So if you look at like the Jesuits, when they came to, I mean, they did this all over the world, but when they came to the Americas to like, for instance, what was New France, the, the people who came were committing to a lifetime they were, or they were at the very least committing to like a 20 year commitment. And so they would learn all of the indigenous languages. They would become totally implicated in the communities. They would set up hospitals. They would set up like orphanages. They would, and after they had like deeply implicated themselves in those communities and and made themselves useful and made themselves like a part of the community, then they would like, you know, start pushing their, their religion thing. Right. And likewise, uh, when I was you know talking to uh, my sister-in-law who's Filipino and, she, and I was like, why is Al Qaeda and why are all of these like kind of radical Islamists doing so well in the Southern islands of the Philippines and in parts of like, uh, Indonesia and things like that. And she said, oh, well, they've got all this like Saudi oil money and they go into these areas and they build schools and they build hospitals and they like learn the local languages and they often marry into the local, they become a part of, they provide like really necessary infrastructure that nobody else is doing, that the state is not doing and nobody else is doing. And it's only after they've been doing that for a long time that they start pushing their, their, 
you know, their ideas, right? So, and this is, um, the, um, I think it's Martha Nussbaum in her book, Cultivating Humanity. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, she mentioned something which I, I was kind of surprised to learn, but the most extensive language um, training of any university in the United States, and in fact, in the world, is Brigham Young University in Salt Lake City. And that's because the Mormons <laughs> want to kind of go and preach the gospel to all of the nations. And so there, you can take language classes at Brigham Young University for languages that are only spoken by, you know, 3,000 people on a couple of islands in the middle of the South Pacific. And they will have classes and be teaching that. Like you can learn Inuktitut, uh, you know, the language that the Inuit speak in, like, and they teach it there, right? And so in what runs through all of these, and, you know, we're kind of, we're not making judgments about what we think about those various kinds of things, but just they have a very realistic attitude towards social change that you don't just go in and like da 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 and like do something great and then think that that's going to have any sort of long term you have to make friends you have to make connections you have to uh, it's a very long term process and i think what comes through very clearly in your book is that if you want to change the world if you want to solve a problem uh, you're going to have to take a long view you're going to have to be committed to that's you know one of the most beautiful things is towards the end of the book where you say uh, all the various people that you're going to have to deal with. And then towards the end of the book, you say, well, you're also going to have to deal with yourself. And here's how you don't burn out. <laughs> here's how you like, you know, make sure that you don't like just uh, lose your. Give yourself. You know, yeah. What is that line in, in the, in the new Testament where, what does it matter? Man, if you gain the whole world, but lose his own soul. So how do you like do all this? Cause I mean, you must see so much of that people who burn out. I do, but John, what you're saying is so interesting and no one has ever fed it back to me in quite the way that you have because what you're really talking about, and I actually think that the the examples that you give are challenging because these groups understand that trust is the rarest currency that we have and they go in to earn it. And um, I've actually never thought of it in... In, in the way that Acumen operates more intuitively because I'm a loyal person and because I believe in, in this idea of trust as our rarest and most precious currency. Um, when we made the decision to go into Pakistan, which was right after 9-11, so it was, uh, call it reckless, gutsy, visionary, you know, all of it. Insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I literally didn't know a soul, and I arrived in that country. Um, but here is where the universe also conspires. I knew somewhere in my deepest soul that if we could find those individuals that were building you know, institutions that were societally oriented and structured, not only could we have an influence um, on how the rest of the world saw possibility within the Muslim world, but, but within the Muslim world itself. And, um, but I, when I met the first people there, um, there was an older man who's now 92 and has become like a grandfather to me. 
um, a man named Said Babarelli. I had no idea who he was. He would turn out to be one of the most important business and philanthropic leaders in the country and someone who is constantly renewing and changing. But Barbara said to me, you know, um, we have seen people like you come and go for many, many years in this country. So take some advice from me. Put your head down. Do the work. Don't tell anybody about it until you've actually done something. That was a huge gift. I also knew that this was such a big step to take my tiny, fragile, fledgling organization toward that I told my board, the only way we can really do this is to make a 20 to 30 year commitment to the country. And, um, and there were times when that commitment was really tested. India and Pakistan had you know, nuclear threats and Benazir Bhutto was killed and relationships between the two countries um, were strained um, to say the least. And yet the, the commitment to something bigger than ourselves and the commitment that we would show up and show up again, you know, not a year goes by when I'm not in that country two, three times a year um, and visiting far flung places that often some of the elites would never go. Um, I've earned a level of trust and um, and that allows a level of truthfulness and vulnerability that also goes both ways. And then you can actually really get things done. And so um, yeah. I really appreciate what you're saying, that I do believe that this is how change is made, but you have to make a 20, 30-year commitment. What I've also learned, and I've seen this you know, in some of the sectors where we've had tectonic shifts like off-grid energy is that 10 years looking forward sounds like a long time. 10 years looking back goes in an instant. Yeah, no, that's, that's so, that's so, so true. There's a wonderful book I read a few years ago uh, by historian. I think it's like, um, I think it's David Hackett Fisher. It's called Champlain's dream. And it's all about the, the founding of new France and about Samuel, Samuel Champlain, who's kind of the main founder of, of New France. And it's, it's so interesting because he just had this very, very long view. And he kind of, he came over and uh, he made these alliances with indigenous people here. And they immediately um, took to him because he always kept his promises he just, he always, always, always kept his promises. If he said, I'm going to be here on, you know, next year, May 1st, to help you in this war against, you know, whatever this other group, uh, he would be there. It didn't matter, like, if there was flooding, it didn't matter if the sea, he would be there on time. He would always do everything he said he would do. And gradually he got this uh, fantastic reputation as being just a, a very trustworthy partner. And so, uh, it's just fascinating because, and he says that that um, he he gives kind of a sociological explanation for it. He said it's because uh, some of Champlain came from a trading village and on the Atlantic coast of France, and traders for a really long time it was all on trust. You had to be able to like I'm going to give you a bunch of you know whatever beaver pelts, and you're going to give me, and I I promise in six months I'll come back from Florence and give you you know whatever. It was all just done on trust. There was no you know really kind of enforcement mechanism. It was just your word, 
And so he grew up in this environment where that was very important. Um, and then when he, he brought that over to the Americas, and this was just part of his personal ethics, um, which really varied because a lot of the other Europeans that were coming over um, did not have those it's, ethics at all. They were just and totally untrustworthy and really sleazy. It's so and, yeah, yeah. No, I was actually I can't remember what I was buying, like a uh, some kind of shawl or something. Um, but it must have been big enough that I either that I I it had to be made for me. And so um, I was at this shop um, at a place where I knew the guy, you know, I, I had been before. And so um, I gave him the money and he said, but, you know, I, I'm not going to have it ready for you in time. I said, well, don't worry. You know, I'll be back in a few months and I'll pick it up then. And he said, but you're giving me the money now. I said, yeah, well, I know that you're going to have the thing for me. And he said, you're not American. <laughs> I am American. <laughs> he said, That's so funny. You can't be. You're South Asian. I was like, do I look South Asian? And he said, because that is not how Americans think. And I said, some Americans think that way. I said, look, where are you going to go? And um, he said, but we have no contract. You didn't write anything down. I said, but I'm looking at you in the eyes. And, um, and it's exactly what you were saying. And of course, he made this beautiful, I guess it was this bird, actually. It wasn't a, for me. And we've become buddies over time that I will show up. And, and when we started our fellowship program, too, this is a, a way of really inculcating the moral revolution, if you will. Um, can you build entrepreneurial moral leaders, builders, not just talkers, builders, um, although we need the storytellers, so I'm not belittling, but this building is um, across the country. And the only way you can do it is if you identify individuals across race, class, ethnicity, geography, which is super un- uncomfortable in all of our countries, including the United States, uh, or maybe especially the United States. And, um, and same thing, John. It's like the only way we can do this is to make a commitment now that we will do this for 10, for 20 to 30 years, because those 30 year olds today, when they're in their fifties will be running corporations and civil society organizations. They will be hopefully ministers of government, but unlike our leaders today who haven't developed the different layers of their own identity, nor their curiosity to really understand other people in their own communities, their own countries, let alone people from around the world, this cohort will have grown up together and they will have been made, they will have learned what it feels like to get comfortable being uncomfortable um, when they're still forming who they are. And that's really part of the vision that you do that in enough countries. Um, Not only do you then have cohorts built on trust that are very diverse, but are bonded by a commitment to putting our humanity at the center of our systems. And, um, but then you've got those in other countries in the world. And I actually think that's a theory of change that is worth fighting for. Yeah. Well, one of the talk about uncomfortable conversations, one of the, I would say 
I was really enjoying your book, but where I would say it just completely kind of blew my mind where I was just like, Oh my God, this is really, really good. Uh, was, I think it was like kind of the fifth, fifth or sixth chapter uh, where you, you talk about there's this, you talk about having uncomfortable conversations and navigating different identities and different kinds of, and so there's that wonderful section, which you made me think about when you talked about going into Pakistan. Uh, what do you think about Malala? Maybe you could sort of tell that story to our listeners. It's, it's just, it, there's, in a book filled with amazing stories, that is a really kind of mind-blowing uh, story about people asking you, what do you think about Malala? So, yeah, especially to a non-Pakistani. Um, so, Chinua Achebe, the Nigerian um, Nobel laureate author, he did this amazing speech where he talked about genuine elites and counterfeit elites. And, um, and so I was with this group of young people and I was asking them in their own country, could they give examples of genuine elites and counterfeit elites? And, you know, they came up with different names. And then I sort of knew what I was doing because I knew that Malala was um, sort of a lightning rod. And so I said, well, what about Malala? Genuine, counterfeit. And half the room um, said, no, genuine. She's a hero. And the other half of the room said, counterfeit. She's a CIA agent. And I was like, whoa, the two realities, you know, agent angel could not be more stark. And the din was crazy as everybody was shouting over each other about who she was and who she wasn't. And suddenly I saw this young guy um, that um, looked like he may have come from her region. And he was very um, quiet, but sort of scowling. And so I stopped the conversation and I, and I called him out and said, Hey, what's going on with you? And he said, you know, she, she's terrible. And I said, talk to me about it. You know, who are you? Where do you come from? And he said, look, I come from her village and I'm from Sawat, which is the area where she is from. And it's this beautiful place. It's always been the most progressive place. We always had these incredible schools that trained our daughters. But after the earthquake about 15 years ago, the Taliban came down from the mountains. They took over Sawat and, um, and everything changed. But when Malala was shot by the Taliban, it fit the United States and all of the West's perception of what's going on in our area. Um, they, they, they forgot that, that they created the Taliban during their war with Afghanistan. And, um, and instead, they blamed our situation on us. They see us as more primitive. They see us as people who don't care about our children and our daughters. And, um, and they use her as a model. He said, when, when would they ever celebrate a girl that got hit by a drone attack? Um, And it really stunned everyone in the room. And then he didn't let the Pakistanis off the hook. And he said, even in my own country, Pashtuns like us are seen as second-class citizens. Um, So no, Malala is no hero to me. And that opened up a whole space for conversation 
about how we all hold these multiple identities within ourselves. He's a Pashtun, he's a man, he's a father, he's a brother, but he's a teacher and an, ed- an educator that actually teaches girls. But when one part of his identity or any of our identity are threatened, that part of your hierarchy of identities, if you will, goes to the top. And that is all you become. And that is when we end up not only moving from that threat, but often um, sounding much more strident than we actually may feel inside. And that's when conversations shut down. I was really, and continue to be very deeply influenced by the work of the French Lebanese writer and publisher, Amin Malouf, um, whose novels are spectacular. Um, But he has written and studied the role of fear and the role of our multiple identities. And if only we could all see the the composite of our layers and layers of identity and use those different layers as, as ways of connecting with another human being rather than reducing ourselves and others to a single identity. Um, we could actually begin to see identity as a way of connecting rather than the weapon it has become to dividing. Yeah. No, it's, it's such a, it's such an important point in these times because it, it seems to very often we're given this false choice. Like you either have to, I don't know, somehow you know, imagine that, that you've transcended all identity and that you're just this, I don't know, all seeing eye or something that, Oh, I've transcended uh, nation. I've transcended gender. I've transcended you know religion, all these different things. There's that, that option, which, uh, you know, Martha Nussbaum even flirted with that kind of cosmopolitanism briefly, but then she said it's just so bloodless and it, it doesn't, you know, it's not fulfilling. It, it kind of leaves so much important stuff out. And then the opposite is just this, you have to kind of completely immerse yourself in, in a particular identity to the exclusion of connecting with anybody else. It's, it's a false choice, but it's, um, in these particular times, it's often, it, it's really pushy. I mean, you, you do give a couple of examples, uh, very, I, I thought just very brave, almost like shocking. Like I, I sort of read it and I thought, wow, I can't believe she said that out loud. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> uh, because I mean, I, I know that this stuff happens all the time. It's just, it's one of those things people usually sweep under the rug or you don't really mention it, but, uh, Two examples, one in the blue sweater where you, you talk about what are just like something out of a David Lynch movie. Like the the woman kind of you you gave her a pseudonym, but sort of inviting her to her house and everything's done oh, in like beige, and then she comes out of her closet and she's wearing just lingerie. She's sort of like you can't even tell if she's hitting on you or just trying to freak you out. Like what a like there's these anecdotes in your books where they're so weird that it's got to be real. Because <laughs> you're like, nobody could think of that. They're just but so that, bizarre. But you know, that's what it means to be human. Yeah. Because we're a mix of all of this. And too often, we reduce each other to these single, these single um identities for lack of a better word and what's so fascinating i've actually been thinking about this i don't know how you feel feel about this but um 
you know, Sam Huntington wrote the, that, that kind of world-changing article on the War of Civilizations where he predicted that the, that the West and Islam particularly would each rise in opposition to the other um, and that these two civilizations wouldn't be compatible. Um, and I was always, um, uh, would never fully buy that argument. Um, again, it was too simplistic. What's been fascinating to me when you talk about identities is that right now, at least in the United States, but you're seeing it all over the world, in Germany and France and India, um, we're also reducing each other to the identities of ideology, ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, in this time of COVID, whether you wear a, a, a surgical mask or not, um, is becoming a, a symbol of who you are. And um, the danger of that single story is extraordinary because um, what does it actually mean? Um, but I find it so fascinating because the symbols that we, that we hold on to that can be completely benign and so easily are turned into symbols of fears, particularly by more demagogic demagogic personalities that would rather divide us um, is where danger lies. If we don't remind ourselves over and over that all of us are many, many different things. And so um, I just find it fascinating sometimes that we used to have all these big arguments about headscarves and now we're having similar arguments um, with people who all look like each other, except some are wearing, you know, face masks. Yeah. Well, as your friend, uh, John Haidt says, you know, in the righteous mind that we are by nature really groupish, like we're, we're a very social species. And so we like, we like to be on teams. And so we, this is like a very hardwired tendency. So those demagogues, it's not as if they're just sort of creating something out of nothing. We have this natural tendency to, to be very tribal and very kind of groupish. And so they're just like um, channeling that natural desire. And to the extent to which um, a more kind of globalized world kind of negates um, space and negates identity and negates kind of and says, you know, all the the suburbs in Canadian cities look the same as su- the suburbs in American cities. You can't really tell the difference, uh, but they have the same trees, the same lawn, the same kind of architecture. The malls have the same 12 stores in Minneapolis as they do in Toronto, as they do in South Carolina, or California. Uh, so there's this kind of homogenization that, that globalization does. And what that very often does is kind of uh, rips people away from their roots and from connection to place. And so now they've got this, this kind of free floating uh, desire for connection for, for to be a part of a team. Um, and you've taken away what they were connected to. And so that makes them very, very um, vulnerable to various kinds of ideologues and demagogues who have say, Hey, come join our team. Right, so it's no it's no accident as as John Heidi points out. It's no accident that the biggest mega churches in the United States and Canada are in the cities that have 
the largest percentage of people who moved there from somewhere else, places like Phoenix, like where you have very few people who were actually born there. There are cities that are like cities that have kind of increased in size. Nobody has family there. Nobody grew up there. They don't really. And so these communities provide, well, they provide kind of a, a ready-made tribe and team for people who've been dislocated. And so in other parts of the world, various kinds of uh, very conservative versions of, of uh, Sunni Islam serve the same function. Evangelicalism, especially Pentecostalism, serves that function uh, you know, all over the place. So it, it is, they're, they're kind of channeling this, this deep need, you know, but then once they provide it to people, they act as if, oh, this is the way, this is our traditional folkways. We've done it like this forever. No, you've done it like this for like a generation or two tops. You know, it's like, this is Christmas music. It was all invented in the fifties. Like you're, you're acting like we've done this forever. Right. But this is where, um, again, the truths on either side, the polarities that we jump from one side to the other, rather than doing the harder work of holding the, the opposite truth's intention without rejecting either. Um, because the conservatives have a point when they say, dumbing everything down to happy holidays, um, diminishes the, the, the kind of the magic that Christians and Jews and people who follow Kwanzaa and Muslims, when Eid is closer, um, that they could celebrate. And I've always been really impacted, um, particularly um, in India, our Acumen's offices in Bandra, which is a suburb that is, um, for some reason, was very Catholic at one point. So there are lots of churches, and at Christmas time, you've got um, Santa Clauses, and 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 people are will, will literally, in a sentence, be you know, will will will. Um, will greet you with a with a Muslim greeting, wish you Merry Christmas, celebrate the you know Diwali, the the the, the season of lights, and um, and there's this sense of, um, of of in the best right now. India's in a different place, but there's a sense of wholeness that encompasses diversity, and that is what we need to get to. Um, what's so tragic about where America is right now, and yet what is an opportunity for this country is that more than just about any country on the planet, the United States holds the world. Um, And and it's not just the, the coastal cities, a town like Omaha or Minneapolis you see all different kinds of people from all different kinds of cultures. And for us, and I'm speaking as an American now, but I could be speaking as an Indian, as a Pakistani, as a, as a Nigerian, for all of us to step back and remind ourselves of the, the values and the myths, if you will, the stories of what binds us, that actually is important because then we can see ourselves in a greater whole, but we can still celebrate the more micro. You know, I'm one of seven. And when I think about what my parents did really well as myth makers and values builders 
is they actually created seven, they allowed seven unique individuals to flourish. From an ideas perspective, I've got a sister who um, is an animal rights activist and I have a brother who is a major shareholder in a chicken company. Um, And I'm, you know, working with the poor and um, the, and yet there is so much that binds us. Obviously we have family affiliation, but there are lessons to be gained in how we can hold these tensions and not destroy the whole, but rather um, embellish the whole. And so I agree that just being a globalist is um, lets us off the hook from caring for our neighbors, paying attention to the streets on which we live. But more important than that, it makes the places where we live kind of cesspools. Um, but if we only focus on the places where we live in, a, in an interdependent global world where we will not solve our biggest problems like coronavirus, terrorism, climate change, then we are atomized, fractured, um, ultimately isolated, um, and very and much smaller versions of ourselves. Yeah, there's. Um, I teach at a. I teach at the college, which is in a, a pretty wealthy suburb of Montreal, and a lot of my students are, you know, doing doing pretty well, right? They're coming from uh, families that are doing well, and there's there's a tr- there was a trend. It's it's stopped a little bit in the last few years, but for a long time there was this stuff which has been called now in a derogatory way, like volunteerism, right? Mm. Um, they would sort of go and do like a trip to to Africa or somewhere and they would get the kind of the requisite. Um, it's sort of like you, you do your Europe trip and you take a picture of yourself in Amsterdam getting stoned. And then you have like a, you know, picture in front of the Trevi Fountain in front of like the Eiffel Tower. And then you go and do your like your Africa trip and you get your requisite uh, Facebook cover photo of you with all the the dark kids in a village and like you and and you take the picture and then you're there you're in and out and uh there was i remember you probably you probably read it it kind of it went uh, i do hate that expression uh it it went viral i think it was in 2014 if i remember correctly Um, but there was this um blog post that then i think huff post picked it up it was by a young woman i think it's pippa biddle and she wrote the problem with little white girls, um, why I stopped being a volunteerist. And she it was she talked about like going to to Africa to save things and how this was like, you know, ultimately, you know, a really, really bad idea. And she sort of she lays out in a in a basic form a lot of the arguments that Anand makes in Winners Take All, um, that that ultimately um, you know, why are, why are people from the United States and Canada going to these places, right? Why, and are they not like just sort of doing more damage than good? And, and also there was a, some very kind of crazy, crazy class discussions that happened 
uh, at that time, especially after that op-ed, everybody had read it and they were they, some pretty heated, heated classroom discussions that I had to like tamp down on. But, you know, there were in, Indigenous people in the class from way up north, like Cree and Inuit and, and also some, some Mohawk and stuff like that in my class. And they're like, you, don't you, you people realize that like a huge percentage of the reserves in Canada don't have clean drinking water? Like they don't have proper garbage. Like you're going to Africa to build a well. Why don't you like just drive a hundred miles north and build a well like in a in a creek or in any like why are you? Uh, we have like record homelessness in downtown Montreal. Like why don't you go help out people in downtown Montreal? Why are you going like to the other side of the world? Yeah. I mean, how do you respond to, to, I mean, this is part of the cynical perspective, I guess, yeah. but like, how do you respond to these things? Again, there's truth in both. And the whole debate is almost a practice in, um, frankly, in a level of narcissism um, that keeps us away from actually doing the work. There's great truth in, um, and what did you call it? Poverty tourism? Voluntourism. Uh, Voluntourism. On the other hand, um, we need to develop our moral imagination, not only in our own countries, but around the world. What I worry about right now, if we take an, uh, only a nationalist and com- competition-oriented approach with coronavirus is that um, those with resources, those with scientists will develop the vaccines, manufacture the vaccines and keep the vaccines. Um, The scientists will be paid by the governments and those companies that that win, if you will, will make billions and billions of dollars and the vaccines will be priced in a way that the developing world cannot afford. We cannot afford that approach as a world. Because you have cases anywhere in the world and we all have the potential to continue to contract this disease. And so there are parts of what we have to do collaboratively that we don't get to really make a choice about, although we are making a choice, they're just the wrong choices. The, and the more we can know each other, because distance dulls the moral imagination, the more we can get close and immerse, um, the more we'll be able to hold the different elements of this world in us. And so um, do I think that we should have volunteerism? Well, I think the answer is always, it depends. I made a a strategic and policy oriented decision when I started Acumen, which was that there would be no expatriates at Acumen. You wanted to go to Kenya for two years um, to work on our team if there were a spot um, where your skills were needed, um, the answer might be yes. And I would say 90% of all of our teams on the ground are all local. Um, but you would not go as an expatriate. Um, for those that don't know the development world, too often when the um, Canadians and the Americans go, they're paid more money, they're given a car, they're given a nicer house, et cetera, because there's a a hardship element. And my point was, this is not about hardship. This is about building. This is about actually seeing 
all of the incredible advantages that also exist in these places. You have so much to learn and you may be more transformed than anything that you're building. And that was a really powerful policy because it meant that those individuals who would go for two, three years often ended up making their lives there. They went with a different orientation. And when I think about um, Lindsay Stradley and um, David Auerbach and uh, Ani Valbahini, these are three guys, three, um, two Americans and an Indian that met at MIT and they went to Nairobi and they saw the problem in the Nairobi slums of lack of sanitation. Um, but they also understood the big problem. Uh, one in three people on the planet have no access to a clean, safe toilet. One in three. You live in a slum, like in Mukuru, where they worked in Nairobi. That means most likely you will, the most dignified thing you can do is defecate inside your home on a piece of paper and throw it onto the roof beside you. Yeah, I learned in, you, uh, in your book that they... The flying toilets, really, they throw it onto the roofs, and so the roofs end up just covered. I mean, what a, yeah, I mean, that's just one of those things I had never heard. It's almost like like a really extreme, crazy, smelly version of all the kids over years and years putting their bubble gum on the bottom of the desk in school, and then, like, <laughs> there's this, well, like, like tons, it's just covered in, like, old yeah. gum. Yeah. Lots of journalists in um, to these, you know, higgly piggly um, alleyways, and they watch me just like walk around all this stuff, and um, and they're like, "Well, why would people do it?" And I was like, "Well, where do you want them to go?" The latrines that have been provided by well-intended charities tend to get overrun and overflowing very, very fast, and they're disgusting. Um, even though they they do charge. Um, to be used. But once you filled it, who's going to empty it? And so mm-hmm. these guys decided to take on one of the hardest, dirtiest, most complex, broken sectors, sanitation. And maybe because they were outsiders, they saw things other people didn't see. Um, excuse me. They were doing, willing to do the work. They immersed. They they, they spent months trying to build trust, understanding the situation of people in those slums. Um, they saw the entrepreneurial aspirations of individuals who would buy a toilet and be willing to run a toilet. So suddenly they started to see almost a flywheel effect if they could figure out a way to sell these toilets. But you still had to figure out the, what now what do you do? Can you commercialize the waste? But even if you can commercialize the waste, how do you get, how do you move it? And so they created a circular economy model where they they have hundreds now of toilet entrepreneurs that run these beautiful, clean toilets. I've used them many times. Um, And they're beautiful and clean, not only because these proud entrepreneurs that run them and charge about five cents per use um, know it's in their interest to keep them clean, but every day the waste is um, picked up and carry to a composting factory where that waste is then composted and turned into fertilizer that is then sold um, after it has been gotten all of the requisite approvals to, um, to farmers. And so um, 
it took them seven or eight years to figure out how to make this into a viable and financially supportive um, company. But this is the opposite of um, voluntourism. This is about, is about the moral imagination in action. And so you had mentioned the Jesuits before. They also say, go to where your deepest desire, deepest yearning meets the world's greatest need. Lindsay and Ani and David are global souls. They have a gift of being able to transcend all of these boundaries. And in helping to solve the sanitation problem there, they may end up staying in those countries for the rest of their lives. Or they may come back with a whole new set of tools, skills, understanding for building what I would call anti-fragility measures into the kind of public services that can actually serve low-income people in ways they value and can afford. Um, Most young people do want to do something in their own countries, but we've been blinded to what is happening here And when I first decided that Acumen would go from South Asia and East and West Africa and Latin America to the United States, to be honest with you, you know, it was a new level of understanding and personal transformation to get to know my own country again, because um, I had assumed that we should go to the United States because there we would learn a lot about the poverty of inequality. And what I found was that the poverty in the United States, in many cases, not on a relative basis, but on an absolute basis, was as bad, if not worse, than it was in many of the countries in which we operated. You want to compare parts of southern Alabama um, on a maternal health care front, on a literacy front, on a life expectancy front to southern India and Alabama's going to lose every time. Yeah. Well, that's in, in winners take all. He talks a lot about that stuff. He says that actually the, um, the globalization and globalism as an ideology has sort of, it is true. It has like raised, you know, millions and millions, which is, you know, amazing, right? It's millions. raised millions, yeah, people out of poverty. And it, it, that's fantastic. And that's wonderful. But it has done practically nothing for about, he says, like uh, 117 million Americans have seen absolutely no rise in their standard of living. And actually, at the, at the bottom end, uh, right now, there's a the life expectancy is dropping for for the poor, especially poor men. It's uh, it's dropping a great deal, and a lot of uh, you know. And I have family. I have a lot of family all over the states, and, and in some of the, I have family members who voted for Obama twice and then voted Trump. Uh, quite a lot of them, and they, you know, they're not they're not racists. They're not, they, but they really feel like uh, like sort of people like my wife and I and probably you and people people who travel who've traveled a lot people who like you know live on the coasts or got fancy degrees and did stuff like that were more interested in the problems happening like in rural Pakistan or in Kenya or outside of more interested in what's happening like all over the world but 
totally uninterested in what's going on in uh, parts of the Rust Belt that have been just ravaged by the opioid crisis, by like deindustrialization, and that they see a direct connection between that kind of globalism and volunteerism. They see this as being all part of one piece, right? And that's... uh, David, yeah, David Frum's new book that just came out um, about like about a couple chapters into it, uh, Trump Trumpocalypse. But he says at the beginning, he says, "Look, you know, the, the reason why Trump got elected, uh, we, we we have to face up to this." And he said, "It's been hard for me as a conservative, as a Republican, as a, a committed kind of free trader, globalization guy." We created a lot of the situation for this mess because we just stopped listening to poor people in our own. And and how do you tell somebody who's lost their job and kid just died of like a drug overdose at 21 and like, how do you tell them like, well, we lifted a billion people out of poverty. (laughs) Like, you know, it may not be satisfying to them. Of course not. Here's where I actually think that um, as a world we could go and why the moral, the idea of moral imagination and integrating a different set of practices, thinking about them as the tools that we need, including, you know, you say listening. Um, I actually think that when you really have time to listen to a a human being um, in, in either of our countries, Canada or the United States, very few are all, left or all right. Um, We're an amalgamation of both, but we have so pushed each other into corners that we're not coming out. But that if you could develop a different tool skill set that would start with recognizing a truth or even a half truth, you know, there's a, whether it's in just an opinion or even in some of the kind of silly caricatures that we throw out, you know, just to paraphrase what you just said, the left loves humanity, but hates people. And the, <laughs> and the right loves people, but hates humanity. Um, that there is truth and that is, and it is ridiculous on either side, but it is to all of us to take care of individual human beings in a way that also recognizes our shared humanity, that these are all choices. And so, no, in that moment of looking at the opioid crisis, et cetera, et cetera, to say, well, look, we got a billion people out would um, be heartless and cruel. In terms of accepting the responsibility and not just talking about rights, um, for what does it mean? to be in society together. We also are blind if we think that our actions only impact people in the countries in which we live, Um, that all of these decisions have impact for who we are together. And and that's especially uh, important right now where you still see people making decisions that... um, you know, big oil can come into their state, not pay any taxes to help the state, um, destroy the environment, not create school systems. We're not talking about 
the realities of it. We're just talking on pro, on pro oil, pro business, and uh, you know, and I don't care about climate change. Or you people are evil, and why would you allow this to happen? Right? We got to get underneath this if we're going to solve, actually solve the problems. And um, and because we work in the United States and Latin America and um, other parts of the world and now Europe, I'm getting a deeper level of insight into just the, the, the where human beings get in our way, but that we actually have the tools. We know how to utilize capital. We know we have the technologies. We have the knowledge, but we have not developed our tools of using identity, listening in a deeper way, recognizing that we have to see truths on either side. I mean, one of my favorite ones, John, that I write about in the book is our conversation in the United States about immigration essentially has been reduced to three words, wall, no wall. I mean, um, open borders, wall, open borders. What are we saying to each other? Yeah. How do you yeah, build, it's pretty. It's pretty crazy. How do you build a policy that is about recognizing that we are one entity within many, and we've got to find a way to navigate that? Um, but we're not. Well, a lot of people, you know, you know, I've tried to have conversations with people about this, and I say, you know, because if there's a certain type of person. I've had a lot of conversations with them in the last week uh, about your book, actually. there's, I've got a whole bunch, I guess. I don't know if we're going to be able to get to them, but I have a lot of questions from, oh, no. from listeners and from other people but, about the book. But one, uh, from a certain kind of uh, very strident, progressive, activist type person, you know, um, they say, you know, well, this is just a new kind of colonialism, imperialism, and we should just completely get out of all of these places and just stop meddling, stop, uh, whether it's well-intentioned or, or kind of evil intention, we should just get out and just leave them alone. Right. And the, the response that I said to many of them, which was from your book actually is, is that, you know, essentially it's like power abhors a vacuum that it's not as if like you're going to get out and that's going to be it. Like, there's going to be, if if basically NGOs and various kinds of you know things like Acumen, if they move out of a region, it's not as if there's not going to be foreign meddling. The Chinese will move into Africa and start spreading money to try and make relationships and you know to extend their influence. And uh, if the Philippine state is not kind of taking care of business in places outside of greater Manila area, well, guess what, you know, Al-Qaeda and other people will move into those places and will sort of take care of business and extend their, like, there's no way, there's no escaping power and influence and interconnection. It's going to happen one way or the other. So it's just, do you want uh, your values of, of connection and love and trust and, and peace and prosperity, do you want those to be, uh, the the values that are making that happen or do you want something else like there's it seems to me like a lot of the people who are critical of the kind of stuff that you do uh they they have a very naive view of of power as if like somehow 
you could just get out and like that's gonna be everything's gonna be fine (laughs) and the concept of getting out you know that means stop eating chocolate stop eating coffee stop having your cell phone um stop you know stop consuming almost everything that we consume we are entangled and that's the point yeah and that's contributed mightily to our prosperity it's just how do we, how and do we yeah, share that a little more exactly and that that and so even this idea that you know we're going to come in uh, that, that you know in some countries acumen is a for profit in some countries acumen is a nonprofit i actually am not so concerned about the um the financial mechanism by which we are registered that usually depends on the country, but our entrepreneurs are either locals or they live locally. Our fellows are all local that are looking to take the best of innovation where they see it in the world and practice a different kind of skill set around what it means to lead in a more moral way. And they want to be part of a movement that builds the new capitalism, builds the new way of interacting and changing their countries. And we have so much to learn from them. And so what I would say is we need a new humility to recognize that our entanglement ain't going away. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll ask just maybe I'll try to get one, at least one of these questions. But this is from a listener who uh, read your book and um, she actually studies um, post-colonial movements in Africa and specifically ways in which um, they they try and reconcile, and so she she started off with like a, a passage which is from a book um, called War and Reconciliation: Reason and Emotion in Conflict Resolution, which is a, by William Long and Peter Breck. So the, the passage says, um, "In every instance of successful reconciliation, save Mozambique, justice was meted out, but never in full measure. This fact may be lamentable, even tragic." from certain legal or moral perspectives, yet it is consistent with the requisites of restoring social order postulated in the forgiveness hypothesis. In all cases of successful reconciliation, retributive justice could neither be ignored nor fully achieved. Disturbing as it may be, people appear to be able to tolerate a substantial amount of injustice wrought by amnesty in the name of social peace. Um, Jacqueline, in your book, you tell the harrowing story of the the toy market being destroyed by those armed men and that in order to restore the market, they had to, rather than punish the men, uh, they had to actually enlist them in the restoration process as sort of bouncers and protectors, as police. Um, this kind of messy solution to a problem that doesn't provide a Hollywood ending where the bad guys are punished and the good people are. Is this the norm in your decades of experience throughout some difficult parts of the world? Are these kinds of messy conclusions the norm or the exception? That's such a great question. Um, maybe, maybe you could just tell our listeners very, very briefly what the story is that she's referring to. 
So the story is, um, and I and I love that she asked this question. The story is, there's a secondhand clothing market, a secondhand market, in um, open air market in Kibera Slab, one of the largest slums in Africa. Um, about eighty thousand people depend on this marketplace for their livelihoods. Um, and one night in post election violence early 2008, about 200 young men, um, really based on identity, burned down the market to the ground, destroying everything in it, hurting people. And, um, and quickly thereafter, they started to stake their quote unquote rights to build houses um, in the name of identity. Now, this is a time when there's enormous political unrest and riots going on across the country. The police are not there. The international community will not go into the slums because it's too dangerous. And, um, and the community is on its own. And so um, the protagonist of this story is an amazing guy who looks like a uh, a calm accountant named Andrew Otieno, but he uh, is fierce on the inside. And so he has to figure out very quickly, what do you do? You And, and these are the moral choices that we don't ever want to talk about, but we're having them all the time. Um, do you wait for the police to come and get the young man and me, try to meet out justice in a in a justice system that's completely broken and has its own corruption? Um, Do you hope against hope that you're going to rebuild it and then just have the boys take it down again and then rebuild it again? And so he decides that the only thing he can do in that place, the most moral decision he can make is to get that market rebuilt as fast as possible. So he hires the guys he brings them into all these inter, intertribal um, consultations to make decisions on the market. Um, the guys end up building the market very, very quickly. But more than that, he, he works with everyone in the community. So this is a community solution. This isn't an Andrew's solution. Um, to integrate 200 stalls for each of these young men. And so they each... All the stakeholders lose something. Um, The young men don't get houses, but they do get a stall in the marketplace. The the people who have lost their livelihoods don't get to see the boys in jail, um, but they do get their livelihoods back. Um, and, um, And Andrew makes a commitment that he will accompany these young men. And it is extraordinary to see them today Um, many of whom are community leaders, one is a priest, um, contributing. It's still not a Hollywood ending. And it's a very uncomfortable um, set of decisions. Like the Malala story, there is no easy resolution. We have to live with these tensions. We have to live with this discomfort. But when you think about where we are in the world right now during the coronavirus Every time our doctors are making decisions about who lives and who dies, it's a moral decision. Every one of our governors, when they decide 
how much do I prioritize the economy and how much health and for whom? It's a moral decision. We aren't having conversations with the with an openness and a rigor to actually start with the world that we want to build. And then with transparency and clarity, honesty and humility, talk about how we came to the solutions that we came to and know that in, in imperfect worlds, that may be as good as we can do right now. But if we keep building in that way, we can move to greater integration and greater wholeness. And that, for me, is at the heart of moral revolution and this idea that we can make the world anew, but only if every one of us in government and corporations and nonprofits and for-profits and the legal profession and nurses and doctors, social workers, mothers and fathers, that all of us need to start focusing not on whether we are rich enough, famous enough, beautiful enough, but what are we doing to enhance another's dignity? Asking ourselves, are we giving more to the world than we're taking to it, taking from it? I look like I look at a guy like Andrew Otieno, who the world would easily think has very little, grew up in a slum, runs a little health clinic, um, but in other ways, he has so much to teach us about what real leadership means. That's beautiful. Okay. Can I ask you one more? Can I get to one more of these questions? It's a, it's a very personal question. <laughs> I'm warning you. Uh, Uh-oh. but it's, it's, uh, okay. So, uh, this, well, for obvious reasons, uh, this person would like to remain anonymous, but, uh, she says, um, I really loved your book. I've been working in the nonprofit sector for about 20 years. Um, I related to a lot of the things that you talked about, um, from passing anecdotes like being hit on by a sleazy dad when I was a babysitter at 12. The same experience happened to me when I was 12 as well. Um, Many of the things that I realize now have caused me to end up doing what I do and working with the kind of things that I do are because I do have a very idealistic view of the world. I do try and see the best in people. Um, But I realize now that these very traits that have allowed me to, uh, and allowed me to end up doing what I am doing, sorry, it's a handwritten note, (laughs) but um, are also what have led me to a lot of organizational problems in the organization that I run. I very often find that I am surrounded by men especially, but also some women who don't respect me, who walk all over me, who take advantage of me, who show up late, who sometimes steal. And so this goodwill that caused me to end up in where I am um, has made me very often not the most effective boss or manager administrator. And I see this as being a problem throughout the sector And I'm wondering, um, you seem to have been able to overcome these these tendencies. And I'm wondering, how did you do it? Well, first of all, can I just send a thousand thanks for that 
honest, vulnerable question, because I think it's a question that is relevant for so many people who are trying to build things. Um, in a, in a funny way, John, it goes full circle to the beginning of our conversation. It is in confronting difference that we stretch. It's in those uncomfortable places that we grow. And, um, I think I had a great advantage in that I had, um, I grew up as the eldest of seven, but four of those seven were, um, masters of the universe, like brothers who also were, um, you know, big hearted and super competitive men. And, um, and so from the very early days, I always had a mirror held up to me, um, of, uh, of how important it was to make the numbers work of how important it was not just to have a soft head, but to have a, I mean, a soft heart, but to have a hard head. And, um, and so from early days, I, I started to operate and build from the recognition that I needed strong financial skills and tools. And I wanted to lead with my idealism. Over time, I had to learn um, where my shortcomings were. And one is probably very similar to this listeners, to yours. Well, she's a friend too. And I, and I know I have... You know, it's it's a source of endless frustration for her friends because she very often just ends up with these assistants and these people who just take advantage, you know, talk disrespectfully, uh, you know, to her in front of like, you know, potential donors and people like she just and that love that got her into that makes her just kind of sort of a, a doormat often. And it's, uh, and it's, it's very there, frustrating. Yeah. What I would say there is that real love is a hard skill. And that real love isn't just opening, opening, opening. Real love also practices the courage that's needed to say the truth, to fire people that aren't, that aren't actually moving you toward your mission. Um, I think sometimes idealists and relational people can prioritize loyalty to an individual, and I have done this, um, over your responsibility as the leader to actually make change, to actually live um, up to the needs of the mission. And so um, when we invest now, and I hold myself to the same account, um, in others, we look to see how self-aware they are. Do they understand what, where they're strong and do they understand where they need to shore up their weakness? And I've really been thinking a lot about um, the idea of shared leadership. Um, you know, Acumen's now a big organization, uh, 100 million, 150 million on the nonprofit side, another 150 million on the for-profit side, 700 fellows, a million people signed up for our courses. We're not small. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a president who um, loves building institutions, just as I love um, innovating and building um, a sense of possibility and movement, if you will. But I also have to have 
practice building the muscles and the courage to do the hard. And the more I leaned into that, the more I allowed the softness um, to lead because it get, I have a confidence that people, as they get to know me, actually find that there's a lot of steel inside. And so the metaphor that I talk about in the book, but that I would leave you with is that of a bull and a dove, because I think that they exist in all of us. And, um, and it's when, it's when the bull and the dove can dance that we find our strongest selves. Um, and so as a good friend, John, what I would say to you is, can you hold a mirror to her maybe to help her see that it is in that seeing all good things in people that allows her to see potential and possibility, but that it is either to her um, to get a more critical eye or to make sure she's surrounded by people that have that and have her back in terms of uh, complete alignment on the mission, but where she can't compromise is allowing um, people who aren't signed up for the mission in real ways to play along and demean and diminish because that is where everything falls apart. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very good. That's very, very good advice. I mean, I guess the problem is with smaller organizations is that one individual needs to be, you know, contain multi multitudes. They need to be, whereas in a larger organization, even, even just like a, a high school or an elementary school, there's usually a division of labor, right? You have the guidance counselor that does certain, yeah. And then I do have to end, but what, yeah. what I end is that that makes it all the more important that you're two or three people. I mean, one of the things I did not expect as a founder was that in um, a year or two, I would have to let go of some of my founding uh, team members who I loved. And I didn't let go of them because they were... Um, they were bad or they were incompetent, but it was clear that what they wanted to do was not fully aligned, nor was it going to help us get to the next level. And um, some of the most crushing and difficult uh, decisions I've had to make throughout the 19 years have had to do with people. Um, But again, when you have that North Star of what you signed up to do and to lead, even if it's really hard, that is where the, the real conversations that can sometimes lead to incredible opening because that person then gets to find where they will shine. Yeah. Right? And yeah, absolutely. Like, absolutely, yeah. The, you've got to hold the hard and the soft. You've got to hold the light and the dark. And that is the irony of the moral revolution that I'm talking about. It's not some set of prescribed and rigid rules. It is about having the the willingness, the courage, and the moral compass to hold it all, to see where you want to go, and to know that within the realm of the imperfect and of competing goals and even principles, you have to make the most values-driven decision that you can. Yeah. Well, it's, thank you so much for writing this book. I, I teach a class called Good and Evil, and I'm, I'm assigning your book to all of my students for the fall semester. So I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you with sort of how their, their essays and assignments go and things like that. And we'll have an, uh, another version of the Blue Sweater Club. It'll be the 
the manifesto club, I guess. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And oh, um, so this was a lot of, this is a lot of fun. And I encourage all of our listeners to uh, go out and uh, buy. Well, I guess you have to buy it from home. Get like the, uh, get the, the Kindle version or buy a paperback version or um, the, the audible version i i got all three actually but the audible version is read by jacqueline and she has a beautiful beautiful voice uh, and it's very it's it's very personal and you kind of you you get the the nuance of emotion by the way that it's read so i would i would highly recommend that you get uh, one of those versions either the electronic the print or the audio, audiobook version of the book and uh, get it it's fantastic Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Have a great day. You have a great day. Bye. Bye.